Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of St. Luke's in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses, and under the leadership of our senior pastor, Dr. Bob Long, we are a family of faith that seeks to share God's love and bring hope to the world. We invite you now to join us for a message of hope. And in that region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angel went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout the season of Advent, we encounter the message of Christmas. We hear the message of good news in shopping venues, social media posts, and movies. In the story, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens used the spirits to collectively share a message of how Ebenezer Scrooge could live a joy-filled, meaningful life. In Scripture, angelic messengers spoke to Zechariah, Joseph, Mary, the shepherds, and wise men of good news of a great joy that had come. Listen for the message of joy this Christmas as we proclaim... God bless you, everyone. I read an article recently where it was saying that Clayton Christensen had died. I had been unaware of that. It's a little while ago now. He, he was 67 years old. Clayton Christensen, I've talked about before, you may remember... He was a professor in the Harvard Business School. He was a very successful man. He was considered one of the greatest business minds in America. He was 60 years old when he found out he had cancer. It was the same cancer that had taken his father's life. And I guess it was because of having to face that sense of his mortality that it got him to thinking and he wrote a book entitled How will you measure your life? Whenever you start facing death, you think about those things. But for him, it was even more than just that. You see, that's the class that he taught at Harvard, was how do you use metrics to be able to look at what are you doing in business, what's going to make a good decision, what's going to be the return, how do you measure the effects of your decision and running a successful business. He'd been teaching that for years. But what he decided was he needed to now teach that course. And when he came to the last session, he would say to the students, this isn't just about business. 
You need to use these principles to look at your life. You need to be measuring your life. And not just business. You see, he had seen something happen through the years in his own life and the life of his friends. When he had graduated Harvard himself, he had a wonderful class, lots of great uh, fellow students. And at five years, they had a reunion. At the five-year reunion, he said, we had a ball. We all got back together. And I mean, now, here we're all out of school. Almost everyone had a great job. They were making big money. Most people were married now. Some already even had children. And everybody just seemed to be in a good place. He said, I can hardly wait for the 10-year reunion. When they came to the 10-year reunion, he said, what I discovered was so many people now were dissatisfied with their jobs. They still had a job. They were still making good money, but they were dissatisfied. A number of them were divorced. Some a second time. They were separated from their ex and quite often their children. They weren't speaking to them. No, there was suddenly now a very high level of dissatisfaction. And so he continued to watch what was going on until it wasn't too much further into the future. He started reading about one of his fellow classmates, a good friend of his, a man named Jeffrey Skilling. That name may strike a bell to you if you remember Enron. Enron down in Houston became one of the largest failures of a company taking down billions. There was such fraud. There's inside trading, all kinds of things. It hurt so many people. And Jeffrey Skilling was the CEO of Enron. And Clayton said, as I listened to people on TV talking about Jeffrey, he thought, who is this man they're talking about? I remember him as being a fine, upstanding, smart, hardworking young man. How could this be? In the end, Enron collapsed. Jeffrey Skilling was sentenced to prison. He just got out this pa a year or so ago from prison. But Clayton Christian was looking at life and thinking, how does that happen? How do we lose our way? And so he decided to write this book. How are you going to wind up looking at your life? He wanted people to take a moment and stop and think. How will you look at your life and evaluate it when it comes to the end? But he understood it's really not just for old people getting there or people facing death. It ought to be for all the young people. For you never know in a moment when your life can change. For all people, we need to be asking that question. Which is really the question that Charles Dickens was asking when he wrote the book, A Christmas Carol. You see, when he wrote the book, A Christmas Carol, in 1843, it turned out that October, the government had come out with a report. And the government was coming out with a report to talk about the struggles that were going on in society in the 1840s there in, in London, Manchester, in England because of the Industrial Revolution. And when they came out with this report, they talked about child labor and what was happening. 
all the women who were trapped working in these factories and in the mines. And it was so horrible. You, you, had, the, you had the wealthy, the factory owners, they were getting richer and richer. And yet you had the masses who were really struggling and were so poor, barely making enough to eat and keep a roof over your head. And so they were struggling, and yet there was the sum, the kings and the, all the royalty, the people of wealth, the politicians, they were doing okay, but so many were not. And when Charles Dickens read that report, he said, I'm going to strike as hard a blow as I possibly can. You see, by 1843, he was already somebody of some stature. He'd already come out with Oliver Twist. Back in 1838, he was a person of wealth now, standing, and he could do something. At first he thought, what I want to do is I'm going to write an article, and I'm just going to be scathing upon all of us in this category. But then he thought, I can do something more effective. I'm going to write a book, a story. A story that I'll set, put in the setting of Christmas that'll make the same point, and maybe people will be able to hear it. And so he began to write the book, A Christmas Carol. That was the impetus. The report in October of 1843 talking about the social ills of England is what spurred him to write this book in six weeks' time, and it came out on December the 19th, 1843. And it would have an impact on the social life of England as well as on how you and I celebrate Christmas literally to this day. The whole idea is he would talk about Scrooge. And Scrooge was a miser who was concerned about success and wealth. And of course, he would represent the wealthy upper class. And then he'd talk about the Cratchits. And that would be the masses, the people who were struggling, working hard, just enough to get by. And then, of course, there'd be Tiny Tim, who would represent the children. The children who weren't getting an education, who were working in the factories, and who needed help if they were going to survive. Dickens would never forget he had been one of those. When his father was put into debtor's prison, when they couldn't pay their bills, he had to go to work in a blacking factory, he had been there. Only because a relative died and left them in a state that his father get out of prison and he was able to come home from the factory. But he never forgot. And now he had a passion that he wanted to do something. So he writes the story of Scrooge and of the Cratchits and a tiny Tim. We've now been looking at this story of A Christmas Carol. This is our fourth week. And four weeks ago we started as we were looking at how Jacob Marley, his partner, who had died seven years before, came to visit him to say, Scrooge, all you care about is success and your wealth and what you have. You're missing the meaning of life. And so tonight, I want to help to try to save you. I'm going to send three ghosts to you. And they all come on Christmas Eve. And the first is the ghost of Christmas past. And it comes and brings him back. So he can see times when he was unhappy as a child at being bullied, times when he was very happy playing with his younger sister, loving her. 
a time when he was working as an apprentice and Fezziwig would have his counting house and there would be a great party on Christmas Eve. There was a girl that he loved, but in the end she broke up with him because he was losing his dreams and values and it was all becoming about success, about more wealth. She left him. He started looking at his life and seeing how it had drifted and changed through the years, the past. And then the ghost of Christmas present showed up and he was a jolly giant, so very happy with all this festive food and he was taken to the Cratchits to see how even the poor really loved one another and they knew joy even with what little they had. But now he sees this boy who is so sick and he says, tell me, ghost of the Christmas present, will he get better or will he die? And the ghost said, if someone does not help, this will be his last Christmas. For the first time, Scrooge feels a sense of compassion instead of just himself. And suddenly the ghost of the Christmas future arrives. And that's where we are today. The ghost of Christmas future that shows up and is very different from the jolly giant of the present, now dressed only in a dark hood and black and silent, doesn't say a word, only points. And suddenly they're transported to see a man who is dead, lying on a marble slab at the coroner's. They don't know who it is, but you listen to them talk. They're going to plan a cheap funeral because nobody cares. No one's going to come. It doesn't matter. Let's just do as little as we can. A cheap funeral. There's some people who say they don't care that this man died. Other people are quite glad that he died because they owed him money. He's taken to a graveyard there at the church. It's an unkept grave. No one is there. No one comes. And now the angel of the future points and Scrooge climbs forward and crawls forward and there he sees on that tombstone is his name. And he begins to realize no one will care. No one will remember. And he begins to then say, are these shadows of the things that will be or are they shadows of things that may be only? Do I have any hope? We know there is hope. Because of a baby born in Bethlehem, there is hope. The expression of God's love, the gift of God's grace, a baby born in Bethlehem, where the angels bring a message to the shepherds in the field, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will come to all the people. Stop right there. Hear the announcement of the angels. There is good news of a great joy that will come to all the people. That's the important part of this announcement. It's to all the people that God offers the gift of His grace, the gift that brings hope, all the people. That's what Dickens wanted his people in England to understand. It is good news of a great joy for all the people. It's why it comes to the shepherds. 
the high priest, the king, the wealthy, they expect to hear the good news. You go to shepherds, they're the bottom rung in society. They don't expect to hear the good news. And the sign you'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, not in the temple, not in a palace, in a manger. God was trying to say, do you understand the wealthy, the powerful, the priest? It's good news for you. But it's good news of a great joy for all the people. That's what Dickens wanted for the people of England. How will we do this? How will we care for all of these children, all of these women, the people who are struggling in our society? How are we going to share God's love and bring hope so that these people hear the good news of a great joy? That's what I want us to think about this morning. And I just want to share two ideas with you. First, it really does begin when you and I stop thinking about ourselves and just open our eyes to see the needs around us. The most natural thing in the world is to be selfish, to see your needs, what you want, what's affecting you. In a sense, that's what I was saying happens with Marsh and I. When I sit down to pray, I can be thinking about all the things that are struggling in my life, and then I think about the people of Ukraine. And it has a real impact on my soul. What does it mean to just to stop thinking about yourself and being able to think and to see the needs of somebody else? That's what was happening for, for Charles Dickens. You know, he did try to hit this thing just as hard as he possibly could, and there was reform. There is the Re Work Reform Act of 1844, a year later. And the Re Work Reform Act that got passed, it limited... It said for children 9 to 13 years old, they could no longer work more than 9 hours a day, 6 days a week. Wow, what a blessing. <laughs> I mean, you think about how, what 9-year-olds do you know? It was now protected. They couldn't work more than 9 hours a day, 6 days a week. How bad had it been? There was so much more work to be done to continue to try to appeal to the people who owned the factories and owned the businesses. Can you look beyond your own needs and see the needs of another? You know, that's what we as a family of faith have been trying to do. And, you know, this past a week ago, Friday, I had the privilege of going and being a part of what's called Fields and Futures. We've talked about it before here in our family of faith. Tim and Liz McLaughlin had the idea 10 years ago. This was the 10th year anniversary. 10 years ago, they had a vision of what would it be like if we fixed up all the athletic fields for our public schools? And since that time, the school administration has gotten on board and coaches have gotten on board and contractors have gotten on board. And it's fun to go back and to look 10 years ago at the athletic fields in our Oklahoma City public schools. They were deplorable, horrible. It was believed, well, you know, all these people who are poor, they're not going to want to play athletics. Obviously, they don't come out and play. You look at the fields, they're dangerous. Who would have wanted to play on them? And so, so many people have all come together through these last 10 years. And now, 
there are 65 projects that have been completed. 65 projects that have been completed. There are football, soccer fields, softball fields, baseball fields. There's courts, basketball courts. There are tracks. When you look at what has been created in the last 10 years, they are amazing. As a kid growing up who loved athletics, I never played on a field that nice. And you know the amazing thing? These children who happen to come from more economically challenged areas, they do like playing sports. And they have come out and joined teams. And they do compete. And what has happened is, well, they're staying in school because they want to be a part of a team. And you have to have a certain grade to be able to participate. And grades have gone up. The participation has grown up. Delinquency has gone down. Kids are graduating more from high school. Just because we said there needs to be good news of a great joy that comes to all the people. That even those who have this struggle should experience something more. It really has been an incredible thing that is accomplished here in, in our city that is just changing the lives of so many through these athletics. And so I, I went to the luncheon a week ago Friday. And I was there and they always bring in a big sports name to be able to come and talk. And this year it was Joe Theismann. And I got to be privileged to sit beside him at lunch and we just got to visit. Now if you, if you like football and if you're more my age, you'll know who Joe Theismann is. Because you've got to go all the way back to the mid-70s and into the 80s when he was the quarterback for the Washington Redskins. And he was a great quarterback. I mean, he would lead the Washington Redskins to two Super Bowls. They would win one. And he became the fourth highest paid player in the NFL. He had an incredible career. And so I knew he'd won the Super Bowl. And I'm sitting there beside him. And I can look down and I see that ring on his finger. And I said, could I look at your ring? He took it off and handed it to me. And I'm sitting there holding this Super Bowl ring, looking at it, and wow. I said, you know, you had a great career also at, at Notre Dame. I know you were a quarterback at Notre Dame. In fact, you went to the Cotton Bowl two years in a row, and you lost once, but the other year you beat Texas. <laughs> we talked about him being at Notre Dame, and, and he said, you know, when I was at Notre Dame, I went to chapel every single Sunday. Did not miss a single Sunday being in chapel the whole time I was there. And I never understood a word. This is back in the 70s, and so Mass was still in Latin. And so he said, I, I, I went to worship, and when people stood up, I stood up. When they kneeled, I kneeled. When they sat down, I sat down. Never did understand a word the whole time I was there. I don't know if that... Football team has to go to Mass if, if you're playing at Notre Dame. But I said, so, so what background and religion are you? And he said, Methodist. <laughs> wow, okay. He's very open, believing God is in all churches just as we would do. But I found out that he was a person of, of faith. And so we visited for a while. And after just kind of talking, I, I finally said, I was watching that night that it happened. Didn't have to say any more. He just looked over at me. 
I didn't know the date, but I do now. It's November the 19th, 1985. He was 36 years old, on top of the world, one of the star quarterbacks in the NFL. You may remember. Everybody watched Monday Night Football back in those days. Such a big deal. I was watching the night they were playing, the New York Giants. And Lawrence Taylor, who was such a great linebacker, came rushing in. He dropped back to pass. Lawrence Taylor came around and grabbed him by the shoulder to pull him down. They fell, and they fell just at a certain way that Lawrence Taylor fell right on his leg, and it broke both bones in his leg between the ankle and his knee. I mean, you could hear it pop. It was a compound fracture. You had bones sticking out of his skin. And they were showing it on television. It's one of the most controversial things that was shown that people still talk about because they showed it over and over and over as he laid on the field. It took him 30 minutes to get him onto a stretcher and get him off the field trying to know what to do with this leg, taking him to the hospital and into surgery. He didn't know it at the moment, but his NFL career was over. That was his last play ever. 36 years old, had so much, and in an instant, it was done. Through the years, Lawrence Taylor has apologized to him over and over, saying, I'm so sorry, Joe, I'm so sorry. And he has said, it is not your fault. You were just doing your job. It just happened. I don't hold anything against you. But I said, I was watching that night when it happened. And he said, you know, I was 36. And a lot of people say, what a tragedy. But in many ways, it was a blessing. I'd put myself in the center of the universe. I lived and it was all about me. It really had become all about me. And when you lose something like that, all of a sudden, I came to realize it wasn't about wealth and fame. It's about people and relationships and the memories that you make. He said, I don't think it was a tragedy. In many ways, it became a blessing. He would go on to say, you reach a certain point in life. The way you define success is not by what you have, but what you can do for others. How will you measure your life? The angel had come to force Scrooge to ask that question. It's all about success for you. It's all about wealth for you. Is that how you measure your life, Scrooge? Ebenezer, do you see you're missing the things that matter to life? People, your relationships, those memories that are shared. There is a good news of a great joy that will come to all the people. And so second, I predict that your greatest joy, your greatest meaning, satisfaction will come 
when you let God use you to share His love and bring hope in a person's life. Your greatest joy will come when you let God use you to share His love and bring hope to another person's life. It's what you should be praying for, asking God to use you to be a blessing in life. Because I believe God will use you if you're open for that, you're looking for that, you're asking for that. For Charles Dickens, he never forgot what it was like at 12 years old to work in that factory. He wanted to do something. And so he came involved in what was called the Ragged School. You see, they had these little schools popping up in the inner city for all of these kids who were homeless or had so little. They were so ragged. They called it the Ragged Schools. And there they would bring these kids. They could come. It was for free, and they would get some education. And he said, it is not perfect, but it is something. Because if there is no education then there will always be want. There will always be suffering. We have to educate these children. And Dickens gave his money and his time and his voice to saying, how do we support this? We must change the working conditions and support the ragged schools. It's what we are called to do. You know, I, I'm so very proud of how we have responded this year. We, we were asking you, when we have our reading buddies, you know, we have a school down south, we have a school up north near the Edmond campus, and we put up our Christmas trees and ask you would, you, would you buy a book that we could give to a child? And we just felt it's so important to be able to read, and so you started buying and buying. So far you've given more than 1,300 books that we are giving to children. Well done. We, we talked about our Afghan refugees who left everything in their country and came here to Oklahoma City and we ask you would you do something for them and you have been so incredibly generous in what we've been able to give to the children and to these families who have lost so much and are in a new country and are here through your giving you have blessed the children. And you know one of the things we are very well aware of is not everybody is going to find a ticket into the future through athletics that some people love the arts. They want to sing and they want to dance and they want to be on stage. And that's why we have our petite theater. That's why we have our arts program for our children. You know this fall we put on a Susical the musical. So many kids were a part of it. And we do it throughout the year. We have the summer programs. So many places to find children that anyone all can come and sing and dance and be a part and, and find great joy putting on our shows. It's fascinating that right now is also the 10th anniversary of El Sistema. It's hard to believe it was 10 years ago when we started El Sistema. The idea was a brainchild of Phil and Kathy Busey and St. Luke's came alongside and OCU came alongside and now UCO has come alongside. We have all kinds of dreams about what do you do to help kids learn to play an instrument and find joy and stay in school. I remember 10 years ago when these kids received their instrument, a brand new trumpet or a brand new violin or a bass or a flute. 
I was there when they opened their cases and saw those instruments and they were learning to play them. There was a hundred of them and then we up to 200 and then 220 and we've been growing it through the years and now we've been going long enough. It was exciting to start seeing the first ones starting to come through who've been able to be a part of the program for long enough. Back in 2000, we wound up having four graduates. And then in 21, we had seven. And then in 22, we had 10. And in those first three years, they earned scholarships that were offered to them, valued at 1.4 million. These were kids who were all heading off to college. This year, there's going to be 15 graduates. But many graduate high school. That's as far as they're going to go, but they're the first in their family to ever graduate high school. And we have found that what happens to them is they stop dropping out of school. They stop missing classes. Grades are going up. Discipline problems are going down. Their world is being changed through the gift of music. A good news of a great joy that comes to all the people. As I was looking at that, I, I was thinking about James Galway. If you're a music fan, you'll recognize the name. One of the greatest flautists in the world. He really has played the flute in, in so many settings. For the Queen of England, for presidents. He played at the crumbling of the Berlin Wall with Pink Floyd. He played with the trilogy of um, Lord of the Rings. I mean, he has sold 30 plus albums, millions of copies. He's now 83 years old, 83 years old, still performing, going strong. But the thing I love is so much of his life is now dedicated to children, teaching the children, the young people, helping them fall in love with music and see a new future. You see, he was just nine years old when his uncle started teaching him to play the flute. He was there in Belfast, Ireland, and he learned to play and began to be with orchestras before he went out on his own. But he became so successful, so successful that he was giving these concerts. And when he was 38 years old, he was in Lucerne, Switzerland, had just given a concert, sold out. And when he got through, a group of them all got together to go out to dinner. And as they went out to dinner, they stepped off the curb. And it was so dark when they heard the roaring of a motorcycle. And it came through and hit the crowd. Three were seriously injured. He was one of them. Broke both legs, his arm, his shoulder. They weren't sure he was going to make it. Went into surgery, came out, he survived. Several weeks later, they discovered the bones weren't healing right. And it was back into surgery and start all over again. He would be in the hospital for four months. When he finally got out, he was in a wheelchair. And then it was rehab. He calls this time the picking up the pieces time in his life. A time to step back and measure your life. What does it stand for? He started wearing a cross. He said, I don't wear it as jewelry. I wear the cross to remind me every day, how do I want to live life? How should I live my life? How will you measure your life? He came out of that experience having faced death in a different place. I want to read you what he said. 
After the accident, I decided henceforth I would play every concert, every cut, every record, give every TV performance as if it were my last. The important thing is to make sure that every time I play the flute, my performance would be near as perfection as God intended, and I shall not be remembered for a shoddy performance. None of us want to be remembered for a shoddy performance. How will you measure your life? Scrooge looked at the past and learned. He saw the future and knew what he didn't want. It would be determined by what he chose to do now. There is hope by the things that we do that we all are able to share God's love and bring hope in this world so that all know there's good news of a great joy that comes to all the people. God bless us, everyone. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen. You've been listening to the sermon podcast of St. Luke's United Methodist Church in Oklahoma City. We are one church with multiple campuses. Learn all about St. Luke's different services and programs on our website, stlukesokc.org. We trust you will experience God's love and hope throughout this week.